Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. The Big Bang Battle that began the Second Seminole War in late 1835 comprised the seminal ambush of a column of U.S. soldiers marching along the Fort King Road to relieve that undermanned military outpost. Three big battles followed in relatively rapid succession along the banks of the Withlacoochee River. The first of these featured Brigadier General Duncan Clinch in command. He led a large force toward the Withlacoochee River from his post at Fort Drain to the north. He intended to meet Seminole chiefs and compel them to accept removal to the Oklahoma Territory by the government's self-imposed January 1st deadline in 1836. Rather than conduct a parley and negotiations, Clinch found himself instead involved in an intense but inconclusive battle with the Seminole. Some weeks later, Major General Edmund Gaines also fought the Seminole at the Withlacoochee River. He intended to bring them to heel for the annihilation of the Army's Fort King-bound relief column. He was fortunate to survive a hostile Seminole siege on his position following an inconclusive battle. Finally, Major General Winfield Scott arrived to try his hand at taming the Seminole at the Withlacoochee River. The Seminoles resisted and bedeviled his efforts, bringing in a now-familiar result, inconclusive battle. Rather than achieve a quick, decisive victory over the Seminole, the Army found itself forced to settle in for a long, hard slog in its removal efforts. Many written accounts survive these battles, but they tell only the Army's side of the story, and some of these contradict each other. These contradictions provided an ideal opening for the Gulf Archaeological Research Institute, or GARI, from Crystal River, Florida. Gary dispatched a survey team to assess discrepancies in the official record by examining the terrain features in comparison to known locations and surviving artifacts. From these, Gary drew fresh conclusions about how the battles were fought by each side to the conflict. Gary is the only independent, not-for-profit organization focused on preserving both the archaeological and the natural heritage of Florida. Joining us today to explain their findings is Sean Norman, Gary's acting executive director. Sean Norman, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Oh, hi. Uh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. What was the purpose of Gary's study of the battles of the Withlacoochee? The battles of the Withlacoochee was a historical project conducted by Gary Ellis and other staff from the Gulf Archaeology Research Institute. So it was an ABPP grant to document the history of multiple engagements that occurred along the Withlacoochee River in a relatively short area. It was to do a Kakoa analysis. Uh, that's the military terrain analysis, where you look at things like obstacles, avenues of advance and egress, fields of fire, all the things that a commander would have to consider when operating a battle. When was the study conducted? That project was completed in 2016. It was a way to sum up some of the previous work that Gulf Archaeology had done, such as the Camp Izzard study, and leads into the studies of Chukchetti and the Wahoo Swamp. How long did the study take to do? 
The project had a two-year time span. Most of it was conducted doing a lot of digital archival work. So just trying to find every piece of information that we could about any of the key officers involved. And archival information always ends up in weird places. For example, LSU has a lot of Gaines's information on the Seminole Wars because Gaines spent a lot of time in Louisiana. Um, so overall, the project took two years, like most of our grants. How much of this was on the actual terrain and how much of this was in the lab or the office? It was probably 90% archival work since Izzard had already been excavated twice at this point. Gary in particular was very familiar with that area. A lot of it was just combing the south bank of the Withlacoochee River around Scott and, and Clinch's crossings. This was largely a historical project. Who was the audience for Gary's report? The audience for this one, technically the National Park Service, and they're the ones who funded the grant. But this report actually is more publicly available because it really doesn't have nearly as much private information and it doesn't have a lot of private ownership, nothing about human remains or anything like that. So this one is more available to historians and such. What happened at the battles of the Withlacoochee and the Seminole Wars? The first battle of the Withlacoochee, the first pitched battle of the war, but one of the early battles of the war, Dade's column is destroyed December 28th on the Fort King Road. And at the same time, the Indian agent Wiley Thompson's assassinated by Osceola near Fort King. War was pretty evident. Andrew Jackson was determined to remove him one way or another, and he was perfectly happy to go to war over this. And the Seminole were clearly not eager to move to Arkansas territory or Oklahoma territory. So you start getting some minor engagements and some attacks around Micanopy as early as November. And then you've got plenty of people who consider that the first war never really you know, had much of a conclusion that all one big war, all three wars. What happened is well before Dade's column is destroyed, you know, the U.S. military is already making actions against the Seminole. The deployment of Dade's column from Fort Brooke to Fort King, part of that. Earlier in November, Duncan Clinch, the commander of the army in Florida, had been requesting additional troops from the U.S. military, and if that couldn't happen, then volunteer militia troops to help support him. The troops that he had requested in November are finally available in December. They come under Brigadier General of the Militia of Florida, which is at the time Richard Keith Call. What did Call bring to the fight? Call brings down about 500 mounted Florida volunteers and joins up with Clinch's 200 regulars at Fort Drake, which is the location of his own plantation, Old Lang Syne. On December 31st, so three days after Dade's battle, Clinch starts marching towards the Withlacoochee River. The key thing is, is while Dade's battle is considered the official start of the Second War, Clinch is doing this action without knowing about Dade's battle. He has no idea that that unit is lost. The U.S. military had already intended to create its own offensive with or without Dade's battle and likely with or without Thompson's assassination. Kind of a bang-bang movement. Clinch marches south from Fort Drain with advice from guides on where a fording location is. You go to cross the river, and it's not really a very good fording location. The water's pretty high. There's just no easy fording. All you really see is one damaged, leaky canoe sitting there. Instead of trying to find another location, Clinch attempts to cross right here anyways, and is able to cross over the regulars to the south side of the river, mostly using this canoe. Then once the regulars are on the other side, he begins to construct a small wooden bridge. But what happens is the men send out a little bit from the riverbank, and then the regulars just start to relax, those who are at least aren't working on the bridge, when the Seminoles open up fire. 
the volunteers of the Florida militia are trapped on the north bank with a handful on the south bank, and the regulars are separated. The Seminoles begin attacking, and U.S. regulars have to form up into a line. So Fanning is able to at least hold his ground for the moment, orders the regulars to charge. The charge is repulsed. Who was Fanning? Fanning was a lieutenant colonel at the time. Modern-day Fanning Springs is named after there was a Fort Fanning farther to the northwest. He was a U.S. regular, had been commanding troops in the Fort King, Fort Drain area at the beginning of the war. And he had reinforced Clinch from Fort King just as the action for the war was beginning. Now what happened? Clinch goes up, reforms the line. The Seminoles start attacking the flanks, but the U.S. regulars are able to hold them off. The line reforms into a single battle line this time. They charge, again, they're repulsed. Clinch is able to rally the men and then is able to charge again. And this time they're able to disperse the Seminole. What was happening on the North Bank? Now, meanwhile, while a handful of militia made more hurried attempts to cross on the North Bank, most don't. In fact, when the engagement first starts, the militia starts firing blindly north into the woods, thinking that they're going to be enveloped, kind of like Dave's column was. But for the rest of the battle, they really have a very minor role. Clinch is able to kind of hold his ground, um, and he only suffers, I think, two dead, but he has around 50 wounds. Out of his regulars, that's about a quarter of his force. Clinch recrosses to the north bank and then returns back to Fort Drain. That's the first battle of the Withlacoochee. Was Clinch expecting a battle when he met the Seminoles at the Withlacoochee? Clinch was definitely going into the cove of the Withlacoochee because that's what was being referred to and would increasingly be referred to as the war goes on as the seminal stronghold. The Withlacoochee was well into the reservation and they had known that the Seminole had slowly been retreating there and abandoning their villages. He went in there thinking that he would go in, set the tone, establish dominance. Whether or not his goal was removal or not, a little less clear. Clinch had been in Florida for some time and had had many dealings with the Seminoles. And from all accounts, they didn't have any problems with him. All reports are that Clinch was pretty respectable, got along well with most of the Seminoles, and supposedly there was kind of an order not to kill him. Clinch was a veteran general, but he had not actually led troops in battle before. While Clinch had previous military experience, this is beyond even what you see in the Cherokee and Creek Wars with the Seminoles' ability to traverse water. Major Dade was surprised by a superior Seminole force, one that he had underestimated in his precautions on his column's march. How do General Clinch's operations compare? The thing was, is if Dade's battle was a major misunderstanding or underestimation of the Seminole power, first battle of the Withcoochee is as well. The main thing here is that Clinch just doesn't understand how they can use terrain. And I guess he just assumed that he had a large enough force that he wouldn't be threatened with a crossing. How does Clinch find himself needing a canoe to cross the river? Yeah, and this is a key thing that goes on for most of the war, is he didn't really have great intelligence. So he was told by a Native American guide where this place was. Outside of the Fort King Road, soldiers really didn't have a lot of information. He was getting into a new area, and he just assumed that if that was the fording spot, then it wasn't going to get any better. Was he correct in that assumption? This area of Withlacoochee is, banks are fairly steep. Just might not have seen anything more apparent. And then even the way this area is used later on suggests that there weren't really a lot of great options. What's the major intelligence disadvantage that Clinch is suffering from as he approaches the Withlacoochee River? That they do not know that David's column had been completely enveloped. What was the problem with the militia in this battle? 
there are lots of issues. They have just a general panic. Prior to the Battle of Wahoo Swamp in November, they're told to attack an area and just portions of the Tennessee volunteers go off on their own. They disobey their regiment commanders, just kind of go wild. Anytime they see smoke or gunfire, they react. You have another instant where volunteers with Colonel Lindsay's group, when he was on his way to go to Chugachetti, they had to limit the amount of ammunition they would even give the volunteers because the volunteers had a tendency to fire at anything that moved along the way, including cattle. With this, it shows the some of the concerns about volunteer and militia units, which end up playing such a large role in the war. This is a warm introduction to how lightly trained non-professional soldiers do in combat. General Call did have his militia cross the river, but it wasn't the rickety canoe way. There's really not a lot of detail on it, but they were trying to do something. When you think about some of the times that they crossed the Withlacoochee River, how are you going to cross with wagons and or ordnance? It sounds like it's something like a cross between rafts and pontoons, but since pontoons are basically just stationary rafts, a little unclear exactly how they were going to do it. They tend to use rope guidelines a lot of times, but it sounds challenging. I mean, some of the crossings in other incidents, you hear them having to swim the horses across, which brings into question how are they actually able to move cannons across them. It would have been something very small and temporary. Probably they'd started it, but I think it was mostly after they had gotten the regulars across. In as much as it was to cross the volunteers, which were mounted, by the way, so they might have needed something more than the regulars. I think it was also to establish a bridge so that they could cross back over relatively easily. Again, a misunderstanding of the way this war was going to be fought in this area, in which case, as soon as it was not being held, the Seminole were then more than capable of tearing it apart if necessary, which they do at multiple um, bridges along the Fort King Road until forts are placed to guard them. Besides not knowing about the Dade battle, Clinch had other intelligence failures, such as not realizing how closely the Seminole tracked his troops' movements. Clinch probably underestimated how the Seminole would follow the troops. During the war, you regularly see it where the Seminole are constantly tracking any U.S. movement. So it's often dangerous for people outside of forts or moving columns to go beyond the line to fish or hunt or anything like that. And that they often pick off stragglers. You know, in this regard, I guess Clinch just wasn't aware that the Seminole were following his movements the entire time. Now, you see the same relaxation, but if they don't know about Dave's battle, then they don't know that it's a bad idea to relax in this territory. Let's discuss other battles. The second battle we would consider the Battle of Camp is Gaines had taken on his own initiative to move his army from the Texas border, from the Western U.S. Military Department, transported his men from Louisiana down to Tampa, tried venturing south for a little bit, came up north, and then ends up engaged on the Whippacoochee. Problem is, he runs out of supplies. He taps out Fort Brook of all the supplies they have. Fort King really doesn't have much to give him. And then he taps out a lot of the supplies that Fort Drain has but still almost starves to death in the siege at the end of February in the first week of March. This occurs in the same area as Clinch's battle. Gaines travels the same path south from Fort Drain, goes to where Clinch tried to cross. However, he doesn't think that this is a particularly good place to cross, and I guess there's not even a leaky canoe to use. So he instead wants to try and find another fording location. This time, at least, he has dragoons with him, so he's able to send Izzard forward with a vanguard. The dragoons are moving towards another crossing, and then that's when they get bogged down with gunfire, both from the south bank and from the west. And so what happens is Gaines then moves slightly north 
near a sinkhole um, kind of stays away from the river and doesn't attempt to cross. The problem is when he builds defensive structures away from the river, he hunkers down instead of moving on, which is really what he should have done. What is the third battle of Withlacoochee? Third battle of the Withlacoochee is then Winfield Scott. Although technically Clinch is the commander in this one as well. After, immediately after Game had conducted his campaign, Winfield Scott starts his. Scott had already arrived at the scene and actually had animosity toward Gaines. Didn't even really want Clinch to go help him out. When Clinch does help out Gaines, Gaines officially turns over command to Scott and then heads back to his department. Scott wants to conduct a three-pronged campaign. The left flank is commanded by Abraham Eustace, an artillery commander, and he'll come from the Atlantic coast towards the Withlacoochee, crossing the Ocklawaha, taking out any villages in between, and then he's supposed to meet with Scott somewhere in the cove of the Withlacoochee, and they'll signal each other signal cannons. The center line is Colonel William Lindsay. Colonel Lindsay comes up from the south from Fort Brooke with volunteers and some U.S. regulars, and he establishes an outpost on Alabama on the Hillsborough River, then to move towards the south end of the over the Withlacoochee and burn the town of Chugachetti. He, too, also has a cannon where he's supposed to be doing, he's supposed to be signaling to the other column. And then finally, you have the right wing or the north wing, which is commanded by Duncan Clinch and Winfield Scott himself. And this is by far the largest wing. Scott has around 3,000 men, regulars and volunteers. By the end of March, he's ready to move. He goes down the same path that Gaines had withdrew from uh, Camp Izzard. He leaves on March 26th, around March 28th. They arrive at the Battle of Camp Izzard site. While passing through there, the Seminoles are taking shots at them. The Seminoles are aware that Scott's there, and Scott is now aware that the Seminoles know where he's at. They hunker down at Gaines's camp. They build a small breastwork to protect themselves, but the Seminole are just firing essentially warning shots. They're just firing at long range, just pot shots, enough to keep up fire going, but not enough to be a real danger. One man is wounded in the process. Scott then moves on towards the Withlacoochee, and when he arrives at the bank of the Withlacoochee, he's fired upon from the south bank. Instead of trying away from battle, he goes ahead and he crosses anyway. He uses sharpshooters and cannons to clear the riverbank enough for him to cross. He's able to cross the majority of his army, but he sent his cavalry downstream a little bit to find another ford to cross over. The idea was that he would at least have another force that would be able to either squeeze the Seminole if they were to attack from the west, or another force that would at least be able to attack the Seminole from a flank or the rear should the Seminole try to envelop Scott's unit on the south bank. What happens instead is that when Scott's main force is mostly crossed, the Seminoles actually attack from the north side. He has enough of a rear guard that he's able to hold them off without really sustaining any real problem. And then he successfully crosses over the south bank, and then the cavalry who had crossed earlier at their own fort had no trouble and reconnect up with Scott's unit. The following day, this is followed up with they start advancing um, back upriver, go past the site of Duncan Clinch's battle on the Withlacoochee, and then their foster with the left flank of Scott's command ends up encountering Seminoles, encountering encampments on the edges of a series of wetlands. He extends about a one-mile-long battle line and tries to move forward, but due to a series of ponds and cypress swamps, he ends up kind of chasing the Seminole a couple miles away, is never really able to get them into 
to engage, and the Seminole are actually able to disappear into the cypress swamps and cross up to the north side of the Wiklacoochee from that area. It's this long-running engagement, but not a ton of action in that regard. That is actually the engagement that Scott will see during his entire campaign, and that's sometimes referred to as the Battle of Lake Ola Klikani. After this, there were no more battles of the Wiflacoochee River. There are other things going on that wasn't even really included much in this report, but warrants some mentioning in Holloman's Blockhouse. And Holloman's Blockhouse was a guide contacted Scott and asked if he would like for a unit to establish a supply depot on the Wiflacoochee River. And Scott said, yes, if you could leave by the end of March and definitely no later than early April. But what happens is the unit goes out later than they were ordered. So nobody knows they're out there. They build this the small blockhouse on the Withlacoochee River. But because the Seminole aren't occupied anymore with Scott, they're able to surround this blockhouse. And these poor soldiers are under siege for six weeks before eventually, at that time, Governor Call realizes that they're there and dispatches troops to go relieve them. And what can you say about the battles or skirmishes during Call's campaign? Later on, during Cole's campaign, you have some minor skirmishes in the same area, but probably a little farther upstream, closer to Foster's later engagement. Both times when Cole tries to cross the river, there are minor engagements. You could consider those in the same thing. And Despite the seeming futility from these inconclusive battles, the army is learning something about the area and becoming more familiar with it. It's all a building exercise. The same places that they'll march along here are slowly being turned into roads. Each time they go through here, they're mapping the area. So by the time Jessup is using the area in the spring of 1837, there are regular patrols going from what supply depot is Fort Clinch all the way to Fort Date. Troops just march back and forth. By that point in war, the area is mapped better. There are several established paths, if not outright roads. You've got a system of fort connecting the area, and it's no longer extremely dangerous for columns to travel through there. Now, companies can actually travel this area without being obliterated like date. There's still minor engagements. There's individuals who are encountered, crops and villages that are destroyed along the way. And then troops will continue to patrol this area, and they'll continually capture supplies and individual seminoles for a while after the Wahoo Swamp. How well covered are these battles by historians? You've got a, a dynamic environment. That one little area can be a lot of action, and that these things aren't happening in a vacuum. Clinch's battle gets a fair amount of attention. Scott's campaign probably gets the least amount of attention because they're not particularly large engagement. Just assume that not a lot happened on Scott's campaign. Not quite true, but the thing is, just because a battle is not necessarily large doesn't mean it doesn't have the same implications or could have turned out the same way as Gaines' battle. Scott's campaign technically starts as soon as Gaines gives over command following Camp Izzet. These aren't isolated battles, but rather interactions that they're playing off of each other. These are the same people involved. Clinch is at first and third battle. This was just one piece in overall military operations the U.S. was engaged in at that time. Gaines is involved at Camp Izzard directly involves the Texan War of Independence. If Gaines had been sitting on the Texan border, it's quite possible that Santa Ana would have been more cautious and you might not have had the events at the Alamo, which take place essentially simultaneously. Instead, that threat was moved off the Texas border and the Mexican army felt more comfortable to try to engage the uh, Texas revolutionaries. All right. What did Gary expect to find from its survey at the battles of the Withlacoochee sites? 
The main thing was to discuss tactics and a lot of it and how each side was using. One problem that we have with Seminole Wars is that almost all the information is from the American perspective. Very, very little is from the Seminole perspective. They don't have the document, and as you say, the winners write the history. Was Gary able to debunk some of the historical record? To my knowledge, there weren't really a lot of major misconceptions about this. The idea was to talk about tactics, and this way we could be able to look at both sides, get a little bit more of the Seminole perspective. There really wasn't a lot of fieldwork for this project. Camp Izzard had already been done. Gary had done some reanalysis for this project. Battle of the Witlacoochee, the first one, is location's kind of known, and luckily the landowner is fairly protective of the area, and it's moderately developed. That's what gave us the ability to explore how the Seminole were doing. Talk about tactics, Sean. How would the Seminoles do this? You get to see a couple great things in here. A, the Seminoles have superior intelligence. They're constantly following the U.S. troops. They know the positions. They are able to seclude themselves well within hammocks. They use the vegetation, the terrain very well for screening their movement. Scott doesn't know that they're around at Camp Izzard until they start firing. He's operating on the assumption that they're probably around the Wiflikuchi, considering every other force that's gone to the area has been under fire, doesn't know their location. And later on, campaign, they Purdue Truesdale spy companies, but basically they start sending out mounted scouts more often, and they start using skirmishing formations more often because the Seminole know their locations, but they don't know the, the Seminoles. And then the key thing is that Michelle Savilich highlights in some of her work is how their use of water that they're able to move through the terrain pretty easily. And then the muddy soils are massive impediments to the U.S. troops, particularly the mounted volunteers. And we see this later on in Cole's campaign, where the volunteers probably do the worst at moving through the landscape. They have a bad habit to accidentally run into wetlands. Even when they do that, they have to abandon their horses because horses typically drown on the edge of these swamps. Whereas U.S. regulars tend to stop just stop once they get to wetlands and just cease the battle, whereas the Seminole were able to move back and forth at will. The fact that Scott thought he had been trapped on the south bank of the river, and then next thing he knows, there's a force attacking him from the north side. That also suggests that if the Seminoles had wanted to attack the volunteer on the south side of the river at Clinch's battle on the Witlacoochee, that might have been able to happen. You mentioned what Gary expected to find. What did Gary actually find at these sites, and what of it was significant? There really wasn't a field survey to this project. You do see learning on the American side. I think in one of your previous podcasts, you know, Wiseman had mentioned that these guys, they did have training. They did know what they were doing, even if a lot of mistakes were made. And then overall, you see that the orders from the U.S. War Department kind of remain the same between generals, even if it does kind of seem like... Each general kind of comes in with their own separate plan behind the scenes. Tactically, they do appear to be learning. Gaines doesn't try to force a crossing. He gets bogged down, but he has other problems. And supplies are just a, a different monster of their own. Regardless of the seminal movements, supplies can still be a determining factor, with or without the enemy, I guess. Gaines is able to learn by not forcing a crossing but it comes to a lack of supplies. He's just not able to really engage the Seminole and try to make a breakout attempt, and he really doesn't try a breakout attempt much. What did Scott learn from Clinch and Gaines's failures? 
by the time you get to where Scott learns how to properly cover a cross, something that's going to become incredibly important as this war goes on. You can't have incidents like clinches battle. You want to perpetuate the war in this area. So Scott is really learning. The problem is, is Scott's fancy flanking movements and such that would work in European tactics and don't appear to work. The Seminoles are able to evade cavalry and they don't really get enveloped or flanked very easily. You see a progression. You get other, other learning techniques where they move more in mass, don't divide your force. And then he had worked out at least some supply issues on his own as well, even though that's less apparent in the battle itself. How has the landscape changed? Izzard is still in relatively good shape just because it's in the middle of nowhere. There was a subsequent historic town on there that you can definitely see parts of the, of the plots there. But that landscape is still decent. Scott's actions on the south side of the river and then Clinch's battle, there's some disturbance. There's now a the ford that Clinch was trying to use. When you see it today it, with lowered river levels, it actually kind of looks like a ford, but that now has a major road and a bridge across it. There's a gas station nearby. So there's some disturbance, but compared to a lot of the urban development you have, such as where like Fort Brook is, there's now a hockey stadium in the vicinity of Fort Brook and then just parking lots as far as the eye can see. Compared to that, they're still in relatively good shape. The location's known amongst locals, and they've done a fairly good job of defending that. While I'm sure there has been some relic hunting there, it's not terrible. The main issue archaeologically is that these are relatively small engagements, moving engagements. Finding, delineating these is always a challenge. Our listeners, of course, want to know what cool things you dug up from the ground. For this, mostly just pedestrian survey. We just drove through the area, looked at the landscape. There was no actual archaeology on this project. Are these various sites appropriate for visitors to come by and walk? Camp Izzard is one that it is hard to access. It's a ways back and it is off-limit um, state-managed land at the moment. There is talk about putting up at least signage near the site that people may not be able to go back there but at least vicinity in between Den Allen and uh, Ocala that we will eventually put up a sign. It gets kicked around once in a while. Whether or not that comes into fruition, we were in talks last year with some Den Allen officials about it. It remains to be seen whether or not it goes through this time. For the other battles, no, there's really nothing there at the moment. Both battles with Scott's and Clinch's battle are on private land. There's really been no attempt to make any interpretive signage or anything like that. Would it be appropriate to have a sign at Clinch's Landing Site? It would be a weird place for people to stop. Conceivably, on the north side of the river, the road is pretty fast moving, and you've got a restaurant nearby, and they could put a sign in front of the restaurant. It's conceivable. It's just, yeah, I, I don't know if, if anyone's really done much work or much thought on putting up any signage in that area, but a, a historical marker is definitely possible. That would probably be somebody for Citrus County Historical Society to, uh, to erect. And these are not appropriate for living history events? Be held in dirt parking lots and and just grass lawns. Now, Camp Izzard, yes, you could potentially do something. The logistics are a challenge. Seminole Wars Foundation has held a couple events out there. It's always just a challenge getting people out there and then making sure that people have the proper facilities. That one time there was hope that there would be an interpretation center on the grounds of Fort Izzard or very, very close. Yeah, no, not at the moment. We'll have to stick to places like Loxahatchee, Dade's Battle, Okeechobee, and, and Fort King. What was the value of doing this survey? The value is a lot of times getting all this information in one place. There's other contextual information written, usually somewhat vaguely, in the general history. Mary Lou and John Massal 
in their book, they're covering three wars. They're covering the entire extent. Well, they've got information on some of these engagements. A lot of these might not be more than paragraphs. A lot of this information, for example, is in Prince's diary or William Foster's diary. It's nice to have all this in place. And then doing a COA analysis. There are disagreements as to the effectiveness of COA. We've covered before. Fails to consider. Just because we consider the terrain and all that doesn't mean that the people at the battle viewed the terrain and did the same analysis, the same process that we're doing with Kakoa. However, by doing Kakoa, you're at least getting a standardized method amongst battlefield archaeologists and battlefield historians. So this all doesn't happen in a vacuum. This survey pulls it all together? It's a synced way of describing the history and then trying to map out the battle. I'm sure plenty of historians probably have sketched out the way they think some of these battles have gone. But aside from what limited historical documents we have, sketches and stuff like that, the actual battle maps have never really been made. This is the implementation of that. Take for granted that at other wars like the American Civil War, where you can look up diagrams for the Battle of Gettysburg 30 seconds and find hundreds. That stuff doesn't exist for the Seminole Wars. So studies like these are able to provide a little bit more light on specific engagements and provide just a better holistic view of the battle. Considering maps, is this something useful as an overlay to historical primary source accounts? The map of the best fit's just a nice way of kind of visualizing how the engagements might have gone. It is a combo of all those. Use as many historical documents as we could in the process. But no, these are modern Kakoa-style maps, usually superimposed either on topographic maps or aerial images. And then you just delineate the core battle and then battle positioned. You mentioned the value of maps, but there is a benefit to walking the ground to see what it actually looks like. You're thinking of a normal river crossing or ford. You might not have seen the Withlacoochee River. Depending on where you're trying to cross, if you're in this area, the banks are pretty steep. It's just not a good area to cross. If you head east from that, farther into the cove, then you just run into these forks, these tributaries coming into the river. You've got uh, Panasofsky there, and you've got a lot of outlets coming out from that. And we have these rivers, especially on the west side, are just surrounded by these lakes. And then on the east side, it's just a series of swamps and wetlands. It's not as simple as just crossing at a low spot or a shallow spot in the river. It's much more than that. And physically seeing it, you're getting to understand the challenges. If you were at Dave's Battle, you might not understand how you could be ambushed while you're walking along the road until you see dense vegetation. And the same thing occurs around with Lacucci, where you can see around Camp Izzard how you could have a large forest secluded in the trees and saw palmetto. You really have to get an idea of what the landscape is like. Walking the landscape also helps you to corroborate soldier accounts or fill in where the soldiers did not discuss it or to negate what soldiers have said if they use imprecise terminology. Soldiers don't necessarily describe their landscape adequate. Sometimes they might not make any notes of that at all. And then at the same time, even if they do describe something, they might not describe it particularly accurately. Or if you have extents like Foster's one-mile battle line following the crossing at the Withlacoochee, an account from one soldier on one end of that is going to look very different from the other flank. The one might be entirely in Pine Barrens, the other one might be nothing but river or cypress swamp. We've got these maps to reference in the Wahoo Swamp Report showing progression of tactics, use of terrain, and then just the previous engagements in the area. We were able to incorporate our background information into the Battle of Wahoo Swamp Report, giving us a more complete analysis of the entire code. What did Gary conclude in its report based on this analysis? Gary had been doing work around COVID the Whitley for a while. This was a wrap-up of a lot of information we had and tying in some of the work at Fort King, 
some of the work at Fort Dade, particularly the work at Camp Izzard with just the known archival information. is bringing everything together. It allowed us to move into other aspects of the Cove of the Wipikuchi Theater with Chukachati and, and Wahoo Swamp. This whole battlescape along the Withlacoochee, there's a lot of stuff going on simultaneously. By bringing in the Withlacoochee battles, you're able to show how this a dynamic environment that's being reused. People are learning from their experiences and that this constant warfare. Sean Norman, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.